Well, it is uh, good to, to do just that, to celebrate the gospel and to look to the word now. And so uh, we're going to do that. And um, I, I failed to mention as I began, well, also, this is the first Sunday of the month. And for many months in our time of uh, quarantine and this pandemic, if you will, we have not participated in the Lord's Supper, but we will participate in that today. And so I'll explain a little bit about that as our time uh, in the word um, comes to a, a transition into that meal. Um, and so we are in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And here's what I'd say about that. If you have a Bible in some form, I want you to open it. And I want you to do that because I'd like you to have that before you because there's not going to be much on the screen in the way of verses. I, I'll have one question that I just want you to stare at and kind of penetrate our hearts with as we look at it. And so uh, it'd be really helpful to have that in your hands. And if you need one, again, they're in the back and kids' activity stuff is back there as well. Um, I get in trouble when I don't mention that. Um, but those are uh, important things as we have the Word of God in our hands to be able to follow along. And so what we're doing in this series in counterculture is the next four weeks taking ourselves through chapter 8 and 9 in 2 Corinthians and looking at what Paul is saying about being generous over four weeks to slow down a little bit in that section. And we're kind of getting closer to the end of the book as a whole. Um, but we're going to read verses 1 through 9. But before we do, uh, we're going to recite this affirmation. It could never be more true than it is today. And I say that most weeks. But we are people that believe the Bible. And we are people that believe the Holy Spirit to help us understand the Bible, interpret it, and apply it to our lives. And so let's say this as an affirmation in our community. Our pursuit is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be a biblically functioning community. We will not shy away from the Word of God. How countercultural it is to our souls. We will follow the King into eternity. Like I said, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 in this passage, with 9 being an obvious landing spot that is just one of the great verses in the scriptures. Good to memorize, in fact. This is what it says, the word of the Lord. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should compete among you, complete among you rather this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake, your sake, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. With that, I want to pray for you. I want to pray uh, that, that you would pray that God would open your heart to his word this morning, that we would be a body that hears his voice and that his word would continue to transform our lives. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, you are so good to us. And as has been sung about and read from already, you have come to rescue us in Christ. And Father, we need you. We are desperate sinners. Without you, we are, as the scriptures say, without hope when there is no salvation and and no attention to you and what you've done without hope in the world. And so, Father, I pray that we would celebrate the hope that we have in Christ as we center around the word, as we focus on what he did at the cross in our meal together, that you would be gracious to us again to remind us of the grace that you lavished on us. And so, Father, help us this morning as we look to your word that we would exalt the name of Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, Do you know what has been given to you in Christ? I just want you to look at that question. It's going to be up most of the time in our morning together. Do you know what you have been given in Christ? Do you know that? And I'm going to ask this question over and over again, almost to the point of making it the point of the day. Do you know what you have been given in Christ? And if you don't have Christ and you sit here today, you need to listen to what has been offered to you in Christ. And if you do have Christ, you need to be reminded as you have him for life and salvation of what you already possess, because I think it's easy to forget. And I think our lives at times show that we have forgotten truly what God has done for us. And so Paul writes in these chapters, 8 and 9, as he's been leading up to in 2 Corinthians, about giving and generosity. So he's talking about support, money for the church. He's talking about it. That's why churches talk about it. People come to church and say, well, I don't like when pastors talk about money. We talk about it because it's in the Bible. Now, it can be talked about wrongly, but Paul is writing about generosity. And he's counseling the church in Corinth about the relief of the saints and giving and what we should do with our resource. But he does this by starting with the basis for which believers would even ever be generous. That's where he starts. And I'm not going to really build on the, the, the detail of application in giving this morning as much as just starting where Paul starts. The grace of God. He sets forth two examples of generosity specifically in the passage that we read by demonstrating just that, the grace of God. And he He uses the Macedonian churches, which were Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. They were planted by Paul in his second missionary journey. He uses them as an example. This is people, a group of churches that has understood that they know what they have been given in Christ. They know that. And he uses them as an example. And then the second example is Christ himself in verse 9, what he has done for us, our obvious landing spot. And so in other words, if any kind of generosity we would have towards others, whether monetarily or any other way would happen, it would be out of a response of the generosity and overwhelming grace of God. So if you're generous, it's got to have a basis. And that comes from knowing what you have been given in Christ. Do you know what you have been given in Christ? Paul starts there in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, my insert, about the grace of God. That's where he starts. We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And I would argue many more churches, churches like this, Real Hope. We want you to know, I want you to know as a pastor, what you've been given by the grace of God in this place, in this season, in this time. 
And Paul starts there. The context here is, again, instead of starting, as he would expect, with a request for money, Paul begins with a focus on grace and sacrificial giving. And again, this is not just about money, although that is what this text is about. This is about all kinds of generosity towards everyone, much more. And so the context, Macedonia, you have to understand, maybe the place is helpful for what's happening here. This piece of land centered in the plains of the Gulf of Thessalonica and in a prosperous area. That's what they were. And I would argue that America is a prosperous area. So it runs up the great river valleys into the Balkan Mountains, and it's famous, Macedonia, for timber and precious metals. So they had resource. They were prosperous. And the churches had been planted by Paul on the second missionary journey, as I said, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And what is noteworthy is they knew God had bestowed on them so much grace. They understood that. Their lives were transformed when Paul came through with the gospel and the message of the gospel. And when he spoke of what he had seen and heard and testified about on the road to Damascus, that Jesus Christ was the living hope, that he was the only way of salvation. And him, a Jew who had been learned in the law, who had known it well, a Pharisee, persecutor of the church, his life is transformed. And he preaches that message and they get it and they know it. And this noun, charis, or grace, appears in these two chapters ten times. Even with this short span of verses, the range of usage is surprising. And is employed, just here's a list of things. It's employed in different ways as a spiritual endowment, a divine enablement, a monetary gift, a human privilege, a word of gratitude, and divine favor or goodwill. Charis, the Greek word for grace. And here Paul uses it to a way, as a way to this, that despite adverse conditions, God has enabled the Macedonians to financially assist destitute Christians whom they do not even personally know. Generous in affliction. I remember last week as we spent time with the votes, Chris was so moved even to the point of emotion that he said, you guys have supported us and given to us even though you had never met us until now. And his his, his, the grace that he had received from our church was overwhelming to him, as should be the grace that we receive from God. Do you know what you've been given in Christ? These churches were experiencing, in verse 2, the most severe trial. Look at verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, they were experiencing severe testing. The Greek word here is literally a great testing of affliction. And more specifically, a severe test consisting of afflictions. The noun used is that a testing proves someone's worth or genuineness. That's what the word means in the word study, which means when we are tested, it has purpose, right? That's what we learn from the scriptures. When we have afflictions as Christians, we are being tested in order to produce something. So something negative, something hard in our view, something bad, is transformed by God's grace into something good. It produces something to show a genuine faith. And God will use our trials to get our attention and often do something in it. The word in, in this passage here that's used, this flip, flipsis, it's like flipsis, it's like a lisp word, right? With the Greek word there, means pressure, and it's found nine times. Pressure commonly used as the harassment that God's people experience at the hands of the world. 
Let me say that again. This word pressure, a word that's used commonly as the harassment of God's people that they experience at the hands of the world. No, no further details are shared about the nature of that and their circumstances, but if one can gauge from the frequency with which the topic of Paul, this comes up in his letters, persecution was a way of life for these churches. Raise your hand if you've experienced pressure in the last several months, days, hours. Yeah, I got two, I want three or four hands. <laughs> pressure. Persecution, pressure was a way of life for the early church and often is for the church. And there's a word about our current circumstances in what's going on right now and, and, and experiencing the overwhelming pressure on the believer right now to navigate the challenges of this world. As you well may know, and if you don't, I will tell you, there are many opinions about these about what you should be doing, about who you should be obeying, about what the Christian's response is. And I'll say it again. I've said it from the beginning. There is a spectrum that exists, usually on all topics, but on this one in particular, the wide spectrum. And I will challenge all of us today on that spectrum. In all things, we are to land as believers in the word in the middle with a balance. On the one hand, there is a, a population of people, and maybe you're part of that that is in fear over sickness. And that's not righteous. We need to be people that are faithful. You cannot fear being sick or being safe. Safety is not a part of seeking first the kingdom of God. If you read the New Testament, Jesus sends his disciples out and he does not guarantee their safety. And so as believers, we have to have a boldness that we cannot worry about these things. That doesn't mean that we take not take precautions. It doesn't mean that we can't do certain things in that. But we cannot be driven by fear if we're a people of faith. That's the one side. Now on the other side, I'm going to challenge the other group because I also believe they're driven by fear. I think what they're driven by on this side is a fear that they're going to lose freedom, that they're going to lose government, the one they want. And it's still fear, and it's still not righteous. On the far end of the spectrum, we're going to lose this and that. That's why we have to do this and that. And it's about politics and this and that and freedom. It's fear. They would not admit that, but they're afraid of what they hold tightly. And we are not people that operate by fear. We're people that operate by faith. And so whatever side of the spectrum you exist on, whatever pressure you feel, God can use it for good to turn our hearts towards him. And that severe trial in the life of the church right now is happening, just like it was for the Macedonian churches. And they experienced this sort of extreme poverty. This condition left them with extreme poverty. That's what the word says there. The phrase literally broken down to the down-to-the-depth poverty or the rock-bottom poverty. That's where the church was. Material or otherwise, they were in the rock-bottom poverty. Do you know what you have been given in Christ or what is being offered in the gospel? Think about that phrase, rock-bottom poverty. A similarity of what Carrie read in Ephesians 2, right? If you go back to Ephesians 2, if you even flip over four or five pages, and you were dead in your trespasses, in your sins, 
in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the air, the spirit of, among whom we all live, one of passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires. That's pretty rock bottom. And Paul uses this comparison as he talks about generosity as a comparison of the grace of God of what they were in spiritually rock bottom. And that's why they understood it. That's why they could give generously because they understood where they were spiritually. They understood they were at rock bottom spiritually, dead in their transgressions. Children of wrath, destined for their own destruction, under the judgment and wrath of God. And then the verse comes along, the famous but God in Ephesians 2. Rich in mercy, saved us by grace. And this, not because of us, right? Not of our own doing, not because of our works, not anything we could do, nothing that we could boast in, but only a gift from God. Do you know what you've been given in Christ? I want you to think on that. And this is why, even in the rock-bottom nature of poverty, these people could not just be generous, but overflow with joy. The Macedonian churches are a testimony that it's possible not to just merely experience joy in the middle of affliction, but to overflow with it, even in the midst of trials. As the, the writer James talks about, that, that we should consider it a joy when we're tested. Our default is not, especially during this pandemic, to be joyful. And most of us can't tell because we're under the mask, right? Our, that's not a response. That we, ne- like, this is great. Like, when this order came out, I just, I did not respond in joy. But that would have been my attitude. Should have been my attitude, rather. Whatever God you're doing in this ought to be joyful. Our joy should overflow even more, just as persecution did not take away their joyfulness. Neither did poverty diminish their ability to be generous. Circumstances didn't change the character to which God was building in them. Their circumstances did change, but it didn't change the fact that they were being faithful people who knew what Christ had given them and done for them. And I want to show you how they gave briefly in verses 3 through 5 because you see this in the text as we've leaped from their affliction. They overflow with joy. They gave in these three ways. They gave beyond their ability. It says there in verse 3, for they gave according to their means. Paul could testify to that, but also beyond their means. In other words, they didn't care about comfort. That's, That's how I would say that. We give typically in our world based on what we can be comfortable with. That's how we give our resource, our time. Here's what I can be comfortable with. Here's my means. Here's what I have. And this passage says they did that, but they actually went beyond their means. Now, if you're sitting here and you're a good financial planner, you would say that's not a good idea to live beyond your means. It doesn't say to live beyond your means. It says to give beyond them. Think about it. They didn't care about their comfort. They went well beyond that and said, we can give more and more. You know why? Because God has done more. In fact, in in Ephesians 4, later it'll say, he's done immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine. He's done beyond what you could even reconcile would be more. And that's how they gave beyond their ability. If that doesn't even make sense to you, I would say join the club. Spiritually, a lot of things don't make sense. How could God do this? When you put yourself there, he can do anything. And that's what they did. They also gave entirely on their own. In verse 3, it says there, 
their own accord. They did it voluntarily, joyfully, and willingly. How many times do we, out of like Christian like obedience, do things because we have to, instead of doing things because we ought to just desire it with joy? And that's how they gave. They gave voluntarily, joyfully. It was a joy to them to do it. Paul's going to write about that later in chapter 9. God loves a cheerful giver, cheerful people that are doing something because they want to please the Lord. And they want to do it out of response to the question I've asked. Do you know what you've been given in Christ? That's the second way they give. And then the third way they gave was this. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Look at verse 4. They actually begged to do it, to take part. These people that were poor in poverty begged Paul to be a part of Relief for the Saints. And this, not as we expected, Paul says. We would say that, like, we understand this isn't a good time for you, good circumstances. And they begged, can we be a part of this, even in our deep affliction, because God's grace has overwhelmed us. And that was the response that they gave because they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then by the will of God to us. The will of God there, that it was God's will for them to be generous in support of the relief for the saints. But it couldn't happen until they first gave themselves to the Lord. So you may sit here and say, well, how can I become a generous person? I would say, have you given yourself fully to the Lord in response to the grace of God in your life? Do you come to God and say, God, I was dead at rock bottom spiritually. And you plucked me from death and put me into life. And no material thing could ever be worth it. That. That's what you did for me. And I want to spend the rest of my life doing work for you. And that's what these people got and understood. In other words, their preeminent concern was how best to serve Christ. They exceeded Paul's expectations. They gave out of their poverty because of their sincere commitment to Christ as Lord. So great, in fact, was their desire to serve Christ that they would not allow their economic situation to keep them from being involved in the Lord's work. Paul's desire was that they got it. And so those are the three ways they give. And his desire was that they got it. Remember, this is the Corinthian church, so much so that he writes verses 6 through 8 about Titus and urging the work that he would complete this that he wanted them to get it and excel in this, in everything. And so what Paul does here is he says, this has this list of here's the strengths of the Corinthian church in verse 7. Faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness in our love for you. But then he says, see that you excel in this also. In other words, practice what you preach. As if, surprise, shocker here, people could be religious about certain things. People could talk about how they had knowledge. Remember that? When we looked at that, that puffs them up and how they were so faithful. And that's happening in the church today, this very moment. People are talking about how faithful they are and how bold they are for Christ. And yet Paul says, excel in this too. Be generous. Why? Not as a command, but to prove, look at verse 8, by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. So Paul says, yeah, you get these things right, you excel in them, but excel in this to prove that you actually love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Boy, is that something we all need to hear today. Excel in your love for others. Excel in your generosity towards others. And generosity and love are linked. We know that. 
We're generous because we love and care for people and mission and gospel and kingdom work. And how do you love others? Only truly if you are first transformed by God's love. And that's the driver here as we look to verse 9. Do you know what you've been given in Christ? And that is how you get to verse 9. The answer to the question that I ask all morning, the pinnacle of this passage, our obvious landing spot, and I would say the most appropriate setup for partaking in the Lord's Supper today. Verse 9, for you know. So as we still, let me stop there. Paul says, I want you to know, because that's the basis. And then he stops and he says, for you know. And that's what I would tell you today, regardless of what your feelings are, your, your heart and your fear on that spectrum, you know. You know the grace of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And that is not a verse about how to make a bunch of money. Oh, this is it. This is you know that Jesus Christ left heaven in all its riches. He left the very seat Right at the right hand of God, he left that and he came to this earth and he took on flesh in human form and he was born in a barn. You know, you tell your kids that. Were you born in a barn? Jesus was. And he took on flesh in weakness and humanity and he experienced all that pressure that flips us that you and I experience in every way and was tempted in every way and was afflicted in every way. Well, I don't think Jesus has ever been through a pandemic. No. Way worse, way, way worse. Afflicted in every way. Emotionally responded. Just like you and I identifying, it says in Hebrews, with every weakness, betrayal, hurt, all of this wonder as a human in a weak body, and yet the very nature God, right? And he broke through all of that pain and temptation and pressure, and, and he did it. He lived perfectly. And righteously, never caved under all that pressure and rejection and stupidity. And I'll say it like that because there is so much stupidity in the world right now. And he lived righteously and joyfully through it. He considered all of that a joy, as it says in Hebrews, as he looked at the cross. Why? Because that was God's greatest act of generosity towards us as he aimed at that cross in love and said, this is the plan of redemption, giving up everything for us. He took on our sin, our penalty of that, and shed his blood at the cross so that we could be restored in a relationship to God. And he did that for us because of love, because of generosity, because of grace. Do you know what you have been given in Christ? Does your life know that? Jesus took it all for us so that we could be rich and not rich on earth, although he gives that to many believers for the good of the kingdom. But with the spiritual blessing of knowing with great assurance we will spend eternity alive with God in our inheritance, the riches of Christ in his presence in himself, all that Christ has been given, we too will inherit all the blessings of God. And friends, until you know this, nothing in your life actually ever matters. 
It just doesn't until you know that. And when you know that, it transforms everything. When you truly know it, God transforms your heart, right? And then he transforms your life. And then he transforms your marriage. And then he transforms your family. And then he transforms your kids. And then he transforms your job. And he transforms your worldview. And then he transforms your politics. And he does it all. All of it. He transforms the hearts of the church towards his heart. And the heart is the gospel. His love for people. And that is who we ought to be missionally. We have a ministry towards people now to point people towards that and we'll be generous towards that end in any way. And not just generosity will flow, but a bunch of good things. And I must say this, most of, as I'm closing, most of what we are experiencing in our world right now is a giant distraction to the church. You could just make the list of all the things that have happened a lot, and it's just a giant distraction to the church's mission to be generous with the gospel. It's just a giant distraction. And the church itself is fighting within, and we know that. It's a giant distraction. So will we resolve to know what has been given to us in Christ? And if we cared about the gospel as much as we cared about politics and masks and sports and the stock market and our bank accounts, I can't even imagine if we cared that much about the gospels or the other things, what God would be doing in the church right now. Do you know what you've been given in Christ? And I pray that we would know that now as we come to the table and partake of the Lord's Supper. I want to pray for us, and then I want to explain how we'll take this meal together. But I want to pray that you would know. And I'd never assume that you have known that. Just by name only, Christian, that you have prayed personally to receive Christ, and I want to pray that you would know what Christ has done for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are gracious and kind beyond our imagination. And God, you are so good to us. We are not worthy of your grace. We think we are, and that's to our pridefulness and selfishness. And we come now confessing that we are not worthy of what you've done for us at the cross. And Father, would we heed Paul's words here that we would know the grace of God, your overwhelming love and generosity towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he became poor for our sake so that we could be rich, and not in the way that so many of us pursue riches in this world. Again, our pridefulness and selfishness to our confession but to the spiritual riches in Christ. Father, I pray for the one who has never placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, that they would this moment trust in him by faith, knowing that nothing else matters. And that is a gift from you. And Father, when we receive that gift, we would know of salvation and joy and hope. And that joy would transform us in a way that even in the severe afflictions of this life, of which there are many and there likely will be many more for the church, the pressure will probably only increase. May we be joyful through it. May we not get off track in it. Help us like Jesus to focus on what you've called us to and do it with joy. God, help us. Thank you for your mercy. 
Thank you for the meal that we're about to partake in to celebrate. That you may be glorified in your church. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. I want to explain how we're going to take this meal together. It's a little different. I'll ask the servers to come up. And as we will serve this, but uh, I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in a moment here, but we will be uh, taking from these little cups, which are sealed. They're the bread and cup together. And I feel like I need to give you this instruction before I begin. Um, we will hold the tray out and you can take one of these. There is a uh, logo emblem, if you will, some printing on a little, this is kind of tricky. There's a little plastic seal here that you need to grab the little plastic part before the purple part and peel that off for the bread element. And then the rest of it peels back for the cup. So make sure you get the thinnest layer peeled and, and then that, that uh, second part, otherwise it will spill. But we're going to take this in the way that honors people the most and, and that's how we're going to do this meal. We are going to serve that and you can just grab one. But as we have always said at this church, as we partake in this meal, you have have to have placed your faith in Jesus Christ to participate. The scriptures are clear. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11 also, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The grace of God, you proclaim that in understanding what he did. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body of the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It may be a meal that you say, I've been waiting for this in anticipation and I need to partake. It may be a meal that you say, I don't think my heart's right right now. Maybe you should let that pass. A time to examine ourselves and answer that question. Do we know what has been given to us in Christ? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross, for the body broken, and the bloodshed, and now, Father, as we participate in this meal together, that we would know what you have done for us, what you have afforded to us. And, Father, I pray for each one that sits here that they would think much of you as they think much of this meal. These are strange circumstances in which we take this. But, Father, I pray that as your word says, when we come together, we would participate in this. We would wait for one another as we do, and we will wait to take these elements together. That we would do it out of an overwhelming response to the grace that you've given to us in our lives. So, Father, we say thank you this morning for your amazing grace. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.